The Lord be with you. If you've been paying attention, you'd notice that church people talk a lot about peace. If you listen to our liturgy, and if you keep an eye on the church calendar, peace is a word that comes up quite a bit. During Advent, we light a candle in the name of peace. On Communion Sunday, we greet each other, and we shake hands, and we bump fists, and we embrace each other, passing the peace of Christ. Actually, passing the peace of Christ might be one of the most important things we share. We hope for peace, we pray for peace, we sing songs about peace. One of the favorite uh, FBC classics comes from number six, and you've probably heard it at a baby dedication. The Lord bless you, the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. Look no further, actually, each week than the little tagline at the bottom of every bulletin. There you'll find our mission, our call, First Baptist Church seeking the peace and well-being of the city. To be clear, talking about peace, seeking, celebrating, working towards it, isn't exactly an original idea. Any religion or church or community worth joining engages in the pursuit of peace. Folk songs talk about it. Beauty pageant contestants talk about it. Rock stars, activists, greeting cards, politicians, they all talk about peace. Speak too glibly about peace, though. Take peace too lightly, and people will start to roll their eyes, furrow their brows, and shake their heads, because as much as we love peace as a general theme, the realists... And the pragmatists, the doers, and the world-weary ones among us can only take so much talk. Peace as an idea is phenomenal. Peace as a reality is daunting. Now, I've preached more than a few sermons on Palm Sunday, and I'm not complaining. Palm Sunday is a great day. We get to wave palm branches Really, it's good times. And there's so much good text to work with. It's such a critical milestone in the story of Jesus. The culmination of the long journey to Jerusalem. In that story, Jesus draws together so many threads to make that triumphal entry happen. There's so much going on. There's that little beast of burden here in Luke. It's a cult, specially selected expertly orchestrated by Jesus. And then there's a character of Jerusalem, the city, alive with excitement. And each year we revisit this amazing display of prophetic action, rich and symbolic. Year after year, we change our vantage point just a little bit. We get a different theological point of view because we take turns reading the same story as told in the different Gospels. And with each fresh reading, different pieces of the story start to jump out at us. They take hold of our hearts in a new way. And actually, that's kind of necessary if you're going to preach Palm Sunday year after year, isn't it? Maybe you've noticed, but this year we've read a little further. We didn't stop where the prescribed reading ends, opting to add a few more verses. 
Including this part of the triumphal entry story is what is unique to Luke's gospel. And wow, those extra four verses, they pack a wall up. In a lot of ways, this extended passage adds so much depth to the story. Casts a shadow over it, even. They complicate it. They're a glimpse of Jesus' perspective in the midst of all this triumphant spectacle, the frenzy of the crowd. Oh, and that first bit is a doozy. And he came near and he saw the city. He wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This picture of Christ finally arriving at his destination after so many miles weeping over Jerusalem, mourning over the blindness of the city, it's a heartbreaking image, isn't it? In stark contrast to all the festivities of the preceding verses. I don't know about you, but for me, so many questions come to mind. What are these people missing? I mean, who wouldn't want peace? How are these things hidden from their eyes? What is it that so many men and women are failing to see? People do like to talk about peace. Pretty much everybody, actually. The Romans certainly knew how to talk about peace. Famous for their Pax Romana, the peace of the Roman Empire. But anyone who lived within the borders of the Roman realm knew what a terrible peace Rome exacted on its people. Rome was an uh, efficient, bless you. Rome was a brutal and efficient master. Experts in the art of war, masters of terror and domination. Roman peace was the product of many terrible acts of violence. Roman rule was maintained by vigilance and readiness to rain down terror whenever necessary. There's a famous Latin saying, saying, Siwis pacem parabellum. If you want peace, prepare for war. In a way, this sort of peace, if you can call a constant state of war preparation peace, this sort of one-sided peace, is the kind of peace that costs your enemy everything. With rulers like the Romans, of course, the people in the crowd wanted peace. You can hear them singing Psalm 118 together. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Peace for the people. This is exciting stuff. People ready to join in the celebration spontaneous and thrilling street party brought about by the arrival of this amazing rabbi miracle worker. They were proclaiming his deeds of power, everything they had seen Jesus do, celebrating the arrival of a mighty king, heavenly king. Can't you see them running down the sidewalk alongside the prophet of Israel, king of Israel? The deeds of power are just getting started. And people throw down their coats. It's only in the book of John that we're told there were palm leaves. In Luke, we just get told about these coats thrown on the ground. And remember, these people didn't have closets full of coats at home. 
Throwing your coat on the ground was just a crazy, exaggerated display of loyalty, honor, celebration, anticipation. It's a spontaneous red carpet treatment. I mean, who wouldn't gladly let their coat be trampled? Because this guy is a big deal. This guy is the big deal. The change maker with deeds of power and wonder. The one who's going to fix all the messes. And what a list of messes. Gross mismanagement of resources. Mistreatment of people. Political corruption. Systemic violence and racism. Poverty and fear. All maintained by those same Roman overlords. A part of the daily lives of the people of Jerusalem. You can bet those people want peace. This is their shot at it. The peace that will come when their enemies are finally torn down. Their enemies are thrown out by the mighty king of Israel. Again, they could be quoting Psalm 118. The Lord is on my side to help me. I shall look in triumph at those who hate me. The Pharisees show up in this story too. And they don't like what they see. Clearer heads must prevail. And one could say, maybe even quite reasonably, that they were trying to keep the peace. So they take a moment to confront Jesus, urgently pleading with them, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. We need to stay off the radar. Maybe don't make such a fuss. Something is going to happen. Someone is going to get killed. This is going to end badly. You bet the Pharisees wanted the Romans gone too, but they were playing the long game, keeping a sort of temporary, pragmatic peace, avoiding conflict and keeping their heads down, hoping that the dictators will remain benevolent, all the while calling the people to obedience and faithfulness, observance of the law, all to usher in the Lord's favor, waging a sort of spiritual warfare, counting on God's intervention. And with enough people in the program, when Israel is appropriately holy, God's mighty hand would strike down those Roman rulers. This is the Jerusalem that Jesus sees. This is the city that breaks his heart. If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace. Each of these visions of freedom for the city won't lead to anything that looks like peace. There's no uprising. No regime change. And Jesus, the mighty king, he does not deliver the goods. In time, Rome would grow weary of the restless and rebellious city, just as the Pharisees had feared and Jesus predicted, the city would be utterly crushed by the empire. In a few short decades, Jerusalem would be demolished by Roman soldiers. Hold on, Jeremy. We bought a whole bucket of beautiful palm fronds for the kids to wave about. 
Didn't you see how much fun they were having in the sanctuary? Maybe you could try not to be such a bummer of a preacher for once. Well, this is a fun time to celebrate Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Maybe we could uh, talk about that little horse. We could probably do three or four pages about that little guy. And I hear you, I really do. I, I don't seek out these hard texts. This image of Jesus weeping at the gates of Jerusalem is such a difficult one. But we sometimes need to be reminded that Palm Sunday isn't pre-Easter. Sometimes the Gospels are a rough ride, and this is only the beginning of Holy Week. Jesus still has a hard road ahead. On that day of celebration, the crowd did have part of it right. They were welcoming the Christ, the Holy One of Israel, the King of Peace, keeping his steady pace on his little colt. But they were utterly blind to what was going on. Jesus' work and mission changes everything. The peace of Christ is not the product of another revolution. The reign of Christ is not about a new empire that replaced the old empire that replaced the empire before it. Jesus' path to peace is for everyone. The whole squabbling mess of the human race. Real peace reconciles with and forgives enemies. It doesn't destroy them. It's not really peace if someone gets crushed in the mix. Regime change is not peace. Real peace, the peace of Christ, understands that we are all in this together. All of us, all of us are brothers and sisters, connected and bound together by our shared humanity. Precious creatures. The other thing about real peace is that it's costly. Jesus was prepared to give everything. As he entered Jerusalem, our Lord was ready to give himself for us, to rescue us from these cycles of destruction and hatred. I say all this, write all this even, recognizing the antagonisms and violence in my own heart. In the interests of my own soul care, I probably shouldn't have given up potato chips for Lent. In retrospect, I should have given up a a selection of news channels and websites for Lent. My wife tells me that she's quite tired of my raging at the television. The divisions and factions that fight for dominance in our culture with a growing hatred, they fester in our communities. The temptations of the empire and systems that crush all sorts of little people to make a sort of peace... They're all around us. This sort of one-sided peace is much more convenient to ignore. We enjoy so many of the empire's pleasures and privileges, don't we? The temptation of a religion sometimes even is to act as a sort of band-aid solution, a cover-up for all those dark motives in our own hearts. Friends, there's so much that we are blind to. We need eyes to see the things that make for peace. 
We need Jesus to guide us on the path of peace. This is not an easy way. We will often falter. We will often fail. This is a long and difficult work, joining with centuries of Christians who have given their lives to this little way, following the king on a lowly colt. People forming beautiful communities, healing places, fixing damaged places, old wounds. So friends, let us wave our palms on this day while we have them in our grasp, welcoming the king. Let us sing praises and give thanks. And when these palms are turned to ash, we'll cut fresh branches and worship once again. And may we have eyes to see, eyes to see the ways that we might extend the peace of Christ to all God's children. The peace of Christ be with you.